Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I am Haney. We're Needy Tech. For once, not Needy Tech issues. Covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 176, recorded on March the 2nd, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on NeedyMetech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. Today is not a Tuesday. It was a Tuesday yesterday, but unfortunately, Simon had tripped over his cable to his lair. So <laughs> nothing was working. Simon was even farther behind than Haney is, and Haney is an hour behind. No, I'm an hour ahead. You're the ones who are an hour behind. That makes so much sense when you put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Th- this is going downhill so fast. <laughs> we haven't yes. even started. But no. on the flip side, we, we already know what this episode is going to be called. Because Alexander said that a week ago. Yeah, we have a metric ton of updates. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, I'm, I'm going to actually dive or jump straight into it. Please do. Uh, because there, there has been so many updates to so many things. And for starters, uh, there's been so many updates to Power BI. And uh, I, I could spend the rest of the hour just talking about them, but I'm going to focus on two of them. One is that previously when you put a, a report into the service, if you added stuff like um, incremental refresh or aggregations, well, you couldn't get your, your PBIX or your, your desktop file back. It was essentially stuck. Uh, so if you wanted to download it, do some changes and put it back up, mm, you were out of luck. This has not been entirely fixed and it's not a bug. It's, it's, it's an implementation. Uh, but they've started to work around the implementations and according to the release notes, they're going to uh, try to remove most of the limitations going forward. But now you can bring back a PBIX file that you have done uh, incremental refresh on, for instance. And that is pretty big. Another thing that came out, it doesn't sound like much, dynamic M query parameters. So this was released a while back. It's still in preview. But dynamic M query parameters means that I can add parameters to my Power Query and this, in turn, is going to be pushed down to the data source. And previously, we had um, Azure Data Explorer, Databricks, BigQuery, Snowflake, and a couple of more. We did not have SQL Server. But as of this month, i.e. the, uh, the March update, we do have... No, the, 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 um, the February updates. The March update is coming. The February update, we have the, the same dynamic M query parameters supporting... Um, T-SQL-based sources. So SQL Server, Azure SQL Database, Synapse SQL Pools, and SQL um, On-Demand Pools. So really, really exciting. And it opens up a lot of uh, opportunities going forward with quite advanced uh, parameters and, and controlling the Power Query stuff from, from parameters. That was one of them. And I'm kind of leaving Power BI. And you're going to like this one if you haven't seen it already. Cost management. That's always a lot of fun, especially at the end of the month when you get the bill. <laughs> when you need to manage the cost. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And it's delivered by a flatbed truck. Then you know that something has been left running for slightly too long. 
and I'm Oops. looking at you, dedicated SQL pools. So <laughs> I thought you were going to say Simon. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, Azure Firewall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could work as well. Mm-hmm. One of the the challenges you have if you have a large enough estate is to figure out is the the cost that I'm looking at is it reasonable? I mean, it's it's easy for me. I have two subscriptions, and they're like maybe a hundred bucks a month. That's that's dead easy. But say that I have a multitude of subscriptions and much much more money running around, I might not realize that I just blew through a thousand dollars. So what's out in preview is something as simple as anomaly detection for the cost management stuff in in, in Azure. It's it's essentially dead easy. And it's brilliant. In its simplicity, it is absolutely brilliant because it is going to tell you that, oh, something might be strange here. You're, you're blowing through money like never before. Is this something you want to look at? And I much prefer having that poke me in, in the face on mm. the fourth day of the month than when the bill comes. And I assume that you have APIs for this so that you could get access to the data some way or another and possibly pause, do something other than get notifications? You know, I don't think so. Not yet. Uh, hopefully that's going to be the case, but I've, I've been trying to figure that out, but I have not seen anything about any APIs being released at this stage. But again, it is in it's in preview, so... And and what scopes can you apply this on? If I have a, a subscription but multiple resource groups, am I able to get insight into a particular resource group or will it take the entire subscription? Because that that might be of importance if I have a very large subscription and I'm invoicing based on usage of a resource group or things like that. That is a very good question. And I've been playing around with it. It is for subscriptions. Yeah. So, so that, do, your, do your architecture right. Yet another reason to do the architecture correct. Yes, yeah. for sure. I'll keep going because I have stuff. We're going to go old school. <laughs> um, SQL Server Management Studio has been updated. So um, not very long ago, um, Aaron Stellato, one of the, the pillars of the SQL Server community, decided to... Um, to leave her employer and go into service for Microsoft. And she's now the, the PM for SQL Server Management Studio. So version 18.11 has been released. Uh, there's a bunch of fixes and a bunch of updates. And I think the, the most, um, most important one when it comes to versions is that the profiler, it now supports version 16, which is SQL Server 2022. Which kind of brings us to 2022 and things that are happening going forward. I think I've mentioned something as strange as SQL Server big data clusters sometime, right? And SQL Server big data clusters came out in 2019 and it was kind of a game changer. It's it's a, a step away from everything we've seen with SQL Server previously, this is the way of running big data stuff on-prem, essentially. Now, it didn't quite get the the 
uptake as they were expecting. And they also, um, they as in Microsoft, they, they are now saying that probably due to the pandemic, the the drive towards the cloud has has been in a way that big data clusters is no longer viable as a product. So it is going to go away. There is not going to be a big data clusters in SQL Server 2022. It's going to be fully supported until February 2025, but it's not going to be a new version. And um, yeah, it's it's interesting when something this big, and this was one of the big announcements with 2019, um, it's always interesting when that kind of goes away, if you will. I'm not sure that I'll miss it uh, because I never did see a use case for it. Uh, but I know it, it could be something that we can talk to um, Ben Weisman about because he's done a lot of big data stuff, including writing a book. But wouldn't that, the situation in Sweden with public clouds and such, wouldn't this have been a good way of doing it? Or are there other on-prem similar solutions that you can run on-prem or in a another cloud? Um, I would argue that this is way too limited for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'd much rather, and it, it pains me to say so, but much rather go to a Redshift mm-hmm. or a similar if, if I needed to do something on-prem. Um, the big data clusters is, it's not a Swiss army knife in any yeah. way, shape, sense, or form. It, it's this very, very specific knife that you pick out of the box once every two years, basically. When you need it, it is absolutely essential. But until then, meh. I'm sorry, Ben, but that's the way I see it. <laughs> so what's new in Intune? Well, there have been a few releases since the last episode, but I wanted to point out one thing in particular, which I, I kind of like, and um, which is kind of essential, especially in the bring your own device era. So in the latest service release from last week, apart from getting a lot of interesting things in terms of mobile threat defense and things like that, we also got terms of use um, available for the Microsoft Intune and Microsoft Intune enrollment apps. So as you may know, in Azure AD and Conditional Access, we can prompt a user and enforce a user to accept a terms of use before they get access to certain apps or services, which is, which is good. Now we can do that for Intune enrollment as well, basically saying that if you enroll a device, you get that terms of use before you're allowed to enroll it. So that's a perfect opportunity for you to have your own terms of use presented in your own local language for a user at the time of enrollment, instead of trying to get them to sign a piece of paper. This sounds awfully like the shrink-wrapped end-user license agreements that we had on every box of every piece of software ever devised. I thought that was kind of torn to shreds from a a, um, um, law standpoint. Does it really apply? Is is it upholdable in court? Is that what I'm? That's what I'm asking. I do think that you, as an employer, are allowed to make your own terms of use. And I'm not certain on this, but I do think that you are, and that it might end up in a internal thing. Ah, you may not have a case in court if you were to say that. Well, you promised to not download these kinds of apps. 
you did it regardless, that caused a cyber attack. I don't think that would hold in court. But from an internal point of view, you broke an agreement you had with your employer. Therefore, we are sorry, but you have to leave. All right, that that makes that makes yeah. way more sense. And and it's also a lot about this acceptable use policy that mm. you have been informed about what you can and can't do. Please follow that. Uh, and if you break it, we will have a serious discussion. And like keep the terms of um, terms of use short and understandable. Because this isn't a license agreement or something that you, you you don't sell your soul. You're using a computer or a a phone. But I think it's a very nice addition that a lot of my customers actually have a great use for. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, then for Windows, we have new Insider builds. And I have made a promise this year that I will be more active in the Windows Insider program. And there are a lot of things coming, especially for Windows 11. They have now also two different channels, one for ARM-based devices and one for um, x86 or x64-based devices, which is great, because then they can target specific features to specific hardwares or kinds of devices that might need them. So for the latest ARM release, which is Insider Build 2253, 563 released on February 24. Bingo. <laughs> well, you Why just did I missed this. You just won an arm. Oh yeah. We now have a new tablet optimized taskbar in Windows 11. And since Windows 11 have moved the taskbar, it wasn't really it it, it worked great for some instances but now you're able to either minimize it so you only see critical icons or you can actually have the full start bar in the bottom of a uh, portrait uh, oriented screen does that mean that i can move the start whatever to, it's called to the left <laughs> yes no this makes me livid and this is why i have not updated to 22 to, to windows 11 yet I mean, it's obvious. But you can do it. You can do it with yeah, other... Exactly. It's, it's It's just not available in a simplistic way, but you are able to move it to the left. You're missing the point. So on this screen that I have in front of me right now, I have the start bar window. What, what is it called? Start, start bar? Start bar. Yeah, whatever. All the way to the right. It's vertical. I don't want to have this ginormous bar at the bottom of my huge screen. I want to have it vertically at the right or at the left. And I can't do that in Windows 11. Well, I, I can do that through a hack, but since it is a hack, it doesn't work half the time. So buy a smaller screen. End of his, end of story. Simon says buy a smaller screen. <laughs> or turn okay. the screen upwards. Oh, you're that would so be. helpful, both of you. I know, always. That's why you have a curved screen, so you can actually flip it over and it will follow the, the table perfectly. <laughs> Perfect solution. Yeah. We, we should be engineers, Haini. Exactly. We would be really good at it. <laughs> Moving on to the next insider um, build, which is for non-ARM computers, and that's the... Um, Leg? <laughs> exactly. 22.557, released on February 16th. 
Um, and, and they have some really cool things as lo and behold, you can use folders in your start menu. Wonder where they got that inspiration from, apart from the placing everything in the middle and down on the screen. Uh, you can have new improved do not disturb and focus modes, which is much more focused, tailored. Yeah, I was about to say that, but tailored to exactly what you want it to be. So do not disturb and focus are two different things. Mm-hmm. One of the really big things in this is that you can get live captions everywhere in the operating system. So whatever sound you have coming out from your device, it will be captioned over whatever you have. So if you're watching a movie, have a Teams call, whatever it might be, if it's spoken content, you will get live captions. That is is fantastic. And it's, to this point, only supported for uh, US. But I think that's a brilliant accessibility feature. When you say supported for the US, is that only Ah. for US English or is it only available in the US? US English. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And some new touch gestures. And I think this is fantastic. We now have a full screen gripper. And a full screen gripper, if you have a phone, you know what it is. Imagine that you have, and this is the best thing about this entire news item. If you have a a full screen touch-oriented app as Solitaire, then you now have a small gripper on the right of the screen, which hides away the taskbar and such, but you can touch it to get the full uh, tool field back. But I, f- I find it fascinating that you use Solitaire as a, an example app. Yeah. And also the last bit, a new snap layout. So when you snap windows to the corners or side of your screen, you now get a layout shown to you. So basically saying that if I drag a window, I can say I want four windows, one in each corner, and it will adopt to that without you having to drag each individual window to a place. And especially for you that have a fantastic screen in portrait mode, Alexander, this will be of high benefit to you, especially the the window that will be half a meter above your head in that orientation. I'll be sending my my physiotherapist bill to you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, Haney, you found some really exciting stuff this one. Yeah, I, I had so much fun digging up all the most exciting news items. So, we are going to start with um, of course, agreements. Licensing. Yes, licensing. The most ex- exciting thing ever. So, um, now, if you have a direct enterprise agreement, so directly between the customer and Microsoft, you are pretty much able to do all the management tasks in the Azure portal. There has been some things dripping to the Azure portal side for a long time, but you still had the enterprise portal on the side that you had to use for certain management tasks. But do note that this is still direct EA, not indirect. So if you are getting it through a partner, you still are tied to the enterprise agreement portal and using that for 
for certain of the management tasks. But hopefully I think this is the first step to kind of removing some excess portals out of the way. And also, just to mention, there's a fantastic site called msportals.io where you can find every single Microsoft portal, all the links and what it does. All right, from portals to monitoring. More excitement. It is. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, you know, Azure Monitor and Log Analytics and all that stuff might have been a little kind of difficult to get a grasp of in the past, where it was all these different components that you never quite figured out how to link together. And in the past uh, year or so, uh, a few years maybe now that we've been in this mode for two years already, so (laughs) for quite a while now, uh, there has been this alignment being going on where Log Analytics, for example, has become part of Azure Monitor and all these different components that you've had to kind of use separately have become more integrated. So, for example, when you're creating an application insights, you can link that to your Log Analytics as well. And that's the current supported way, actually, as well. So there's been many of these pushes to really align, align all these different components. And on the latest sense, what has come in is... Uh, bring kind of more control over the data that you now have in the log analytics, because this has really become the central place where you store your data. So there is a lot of uh, advancements on that side. And for example, there is now in log analytics, there is a data export feature that has become generally available. So you can export uh, any of your tables to uh, service bus or Azure storage and just configure how you want that exportation to go. And then there is also different data retention policies that you can set in place. So for the Azure activity and usage data tables, you are able to specify, for example, a different retention policy than for your the rest of the tables that you are storing in Log Analytics. And then there is also this new feature about setting uh, an archival period for Uh, specific data in your log analytics and this is in preview and there it's because you have your main retention policy time and then you can have the archive time that then actually after the retention period moves the data to storage that is cheaper but it's it's for that less less frequently accessible data so for example if you have some regulatory reasons that you need to store data for a long time you can now do it uh, up to seven years. So uh, much more control and not just that all your logs are this big chunk that you handle in the same way, but you're able to more granularly uh, kind of control the different aspects that you're storing in there. So log analytics is one of these things that really irks me because it is a fantastic thing. Everything goes into log analytics and, and Azure Monitor. It's it's amazing the problem is it is generally only taught in the uh, during az stuff so you need to be an azure engineer or usually work with infrastructure stuff in order to even know that it's there i have a a situation right now with a customer running azure and analytics azure analysis services and they are facing issues but they didn't even know where the logs were ah yeah (laughs) And they didn't even know. They had no idea how to 
uh, look inside and see what's actually mm. happening. There is something that needs to be done in order to, to make people know this. And I do think that Sentinel is driving quite a lot of interest to log analytics since if you learn KQL for Sentinel purposes, you can use that for any kind of log analytics. Uh, and therefore, I'm also very happy to see at one of the scenarios they have in the blog post in regards to how to use the data export is exactly that, to protect your data once you have used it within your Sentinel instance, but you want to yeah. keep it for a longer period of time uh, for forensics, and then you can move it away to a place where it can be on immutable storage, where you can't remove it, because that is, of course, a very common uh, attack tactic as well, to remove whatever data you have. You can't alter it in log analytics, but you can purge it. So then move it away to some place where it can't be removed. That's a really good point. And I think kind of all these advancements are bringing the possibility to really take the logging side a little more um, seriously, because yeah. oftentimes it is a afterthought, or then the other end where all the logs are turned on. And then it becomes just really difficult to find the relevant information anymore. So having this granularity really helps with kind of finding the right level of logging and really actually being able to use this, these for something and not just, well, there's this log uh, blob in the log <laughs> analytics that nobody actually uses. All right. So there, um, it, it's so clear that the people behind the Power BI uh, product has now moved over, not all of them, but most of them have moved over, moved over to uh, to Synapse because we have the Synapse um, monthly blog just as we do for Power BI. And I think that is a fantastic way of surfacing more information. And there has been a new update, the, the February update for Synapse. And two things that I want to point out, and both of them are dealing with uh, serverless SQL pools. And since this is a really cool feature, it's super useful, but it's not without some quirks, especially in, in consistency. So SQL pools have been known to not perform identically. So if I run a query twice, I might not get the same um, performance. In fact, I can have some pretty serious swings in performance, and there is no way for you to figure out why, because you cannot surface what's underneath it. And this has been um, not necessarily alleviated, but it's way better at handling and figuring out that there is a, a slow storage read. Um, essentially, it's figured out that there is a spike in read latency and is going to retry a request instead of just waiting for it. So that means that hopefully the SQL pools, the, the serverless SQL pools will be more consistent going forward. And another thing that came out, now I, I'm slightly confused because I've, I've been trying to figure out, there, there is this, this function called OpenJSON. And one of the, the issues, and I'm going to use that word, from a relational standpoint, JSON is abhorrent. It's terrible because it is something that means that you can have more than one value in a, a column. Now, I know that's fine if you're running semi-structured data, but we're not going to go into that discussion. But the problem is, if you want to take your, your uh, convoluted JSON, your, your complex JSON, and basically bring out all the bits and pieces, i.e. You, you, you want to loop through the elements, 
that's where you use a function called OpenJSON. Kind of obvious. The trick here is now you can get an automatic index, a positioning inside of the arrays with this function. And I can't figure out if OpenJSON did not exist in uh, serverless up until now. It is possible. I essentially don't know, but at least this um, index, automatic indexing positioning is is new. Um, and yeah, we didn't have the um, the hash bytes function up until very recently. So there is a not unreasonable to think that we didn't have OpenJSON either. I, I can't find in the documentation if that is the case or not. But now you will have the automatic um, array element index, and that's kind of neat. Makes everything a lot easier. Could there be a security risk in using JSON within your databases? That's a pretty open-ended question. Could you, <laughs> could you yeah, specify slightly what you I'm, mean? I'm thinking that if you have a value somewhere in your data, uh-huh. but with a JSON, you have so much more things that you can cram into a position in inside of a database uh-huh. is that a a and I, I i have no clue so is is that a security concern it essentially depends on what you do with it if you yeah. just take whatever statement you have whatever data you have in that column and just throw it at something that executes it happily well then you have yeah. an issue but that's also called sql injection so. exactly but but could it be a a more severe risk to do JSON than do regular values. I don't see how, uh, but that doesn't I, mean I that know. that's not the case. But I, I don't quite see a difference. Do you have any idea, Henny? No, I don't think it does at least affect that part. No, again, because it depends on what you do with it. Yeah. Not, not so much yeah. what you store. Exactly. You, you should be able to protect yourself in the same way even though you might have a a bigger chunk that you could uh inject into sql yeah pretty much but the protection should be the same mm. thank you so it, it's time to jump to the focus segment and th- this one is fantastic because it started a couple of days ago and everything was fine before I decided to run something by Haney. Now, as I'm sure all of you know, Haney is this fantastic person. She is amazing. She's very kind, extremely good at what she does. And she tore my head off. (laughs) Completely. Yeah. Because I used the wrong word. Yes. And that sparked a discussion, which was really really interesting uh because i i i had not in a million years thought about this so she was very correct in in pointing it out and the the thing that i was saying was tenants i was using the word tenant and she said well what do you mean and i went something along the lines well your own corner of azure what do you mean with your own corner of the of, of Azure? Somewhere around here, I realized that, okay, I either I shut up and save my skin or I keep saying something stupid. And yeah, so <laughs> it, it kind of fell back to the discussion. What does 
tenant mean? In, in this case, I was talking about private link and how private link interfaces, well, essentially with your, your subscription. What was the, the word that I, I decided to go on? But what's your take on on the word? And I'm let's let's start with Simon. What do you what do you think when you hear tenant? An Azure Active Directory. You just open a can of worms. Haney, would you like to comment on that? Well, I think the most common thing that come to people's mind when you say tenant is Azure AD tenant. And that's fine. But if I use the word tenant for that purpose, I will would always add Azure AD tenant in front. Because the fact is that the word is used quite ambiguously. Some people talk about an Azure tenant, meaning kind of like all the things that you have in Azure, like in your organization. But is, is, does that then include everything that is linked to your Azure AD tenant? Also, if somebody has their personal subscription linked to your organization tenant and you don't know about it, is it still part of your Azure tenant or what are you referring to? And then also we have these services that are built in a multi-tenant fashion, like Azure SQL, which we were talking about. And in there, I think even in some documentation context, I'm, I can't remember if it's with uh, Azure SQL specifically, but with similar services, it can be said that you get your own tenant within that service because it's a multi-tenant uh, service. So pretty much you get your own instance. So tenant is one of those words that for me uh, kind of is like, if you just say tenant, because so many people understand it in different ways. People have different meanings in their head for that word. And so often when we use it, people actually have something else in their mind than what you're talking about. So that's kind of why I was like, especially because you didn't want to really talk about Azure AD tenants <laughs> specifically. <laughs> why didn't you want to talk, Alexander? We need to talk more about AD specifically. Yeah. And, and this in turn prompted a much larger discussion about preconceptions. Because when I say tenant, I have a picture in my head that may or may not be the same picture that you have. And this is... This is an issue in general, but it's an issue uh, that we kind of exacerbate because, Simon, you, you have your own part of the universe that you work with. Hini and I kind of overlap slightly more, but we have a Power BI instance. What does that mean? We have an M M365 instance. What does that mean? No, 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 no. Simon says no. You have an M365 <laughs> tenant. That's the definition, according to Microsoft. Of what? A tenant and a tenant boundary, just to add to it, is the directory service and the services that are connected to that directory, which means you, you can only have one Azure AD tenant that is connected to your Office 365 subscription. If you have other tenants connected to it, they are federated or integrated with your tenant. But I, I, I'm appalled <laughs> that there are more than the right definition. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, here we see that for Simon, it's just Azure AD tenant. Yeah. But exactly. it can and be found also, also elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, and, and that absolutely. Uh, I, I do think the, the, the word can be used elsewhere within Azure. But I think it's important then to state that you only have, and now someone will probably correct me, one tenant can have multiple subscriptions connected to it, but you still only have one tenant. You only have one Azure AD, which can then have multiple syncs and whatever, but you only have one Azure AD per tenant. <laughs> and, and if you want more than one, it's a completely different entity. Take a Swedish municipality as an example, which is a great way of looking at it. You have one tenant for school and one tenant for administrative purposes or administrative parts of that municipality. They have no connection to each other. They, they share nothing because it's two different domains. Which and, then and when you to, say uh, tenant in this case, you are referring to an Azure AD tenant. Yes. Yeah. But I'm now very interested in hearing again, where do they use it? Because they are rather good at not using the same terminology, but you said that there were places within Azure where they use tenant in a different way. Yeah, they, they with some services, they might use that this is a multi-tenant service. Uh, yeah. So you get your tenant. As is yeah. Azure AD is a multi-tenant <laughs> service. You get your own Azure AD tenant. Yes. And so for, I think where the issue comes is that it's not actually clear to all people that tenant is most often referring to Azure AD. Because also sometimes it's said Azure tenant. So people think that it's something different from Azure AD. So it kind of gets confusing in people's minds. So that's that's why I'm like, if you say tenant and you mean Azure ADs, at least say Azure AD tenant or AAD tenant. <laughs> that even makes it clearer. That That's a very, very good point. Because I do in some instances think that like you say, people can be referring to my collection of Azure subscriptions as being yeah. the tenant. But what everyone really means is the Azure Active Directory tenant where you have all of your subscriptions yeah, uh, and they are connected to the same directory service. Exactly. And because to me, also when people say like my services in my Azure tenant or Azure AD mm -hmm. tenant in wh whichever way, it implies that these services are somehow in your Azure AD tenant, but they are not actually like in there. They are more like uh, connected to your Azure AD tenant because you can also change the directory that your subscriptions are linked to. So it's not like the Azure AD and Azure services are one big thing. <laughs> that everything is inside of. It's more like a trust relationship between your Azure AD tenant and the subscriptions that you have. And and I do think that when you refer to multi-tenant solutions, because if, if you look at Azure AD, we are all in the same Azure AD and yeah. you just get your little piece of it. Exactly. That is the magic of Azure AD because they can talk to each other in one big service and you get a chunk of that service that is yours. And then it's up to you, like you said, if you have a subscription, it's up to you to say, I'm now trusting 
this Azure AD tenant to be the directory I trust. The source of identities. Exactly. Yeah. It's good that you're so often wrong, Alexander. I learn tons (laughs) of things. Story Mm -hmm. of my life. (laughs) No, and and, then you should have seen my face. Um, Haney laughed out loud because I I was confused. I did not understand what she was referring to. Uh, So I, I learned a ton and I thought that discussion was so important that we should bring it up and, and discuss it here. And I think we've figured even more out here. Do you remember we, many years ago now, coached a, a um, speaker for the uh, a conference? And that speaker were talking about domain-driven design and the importance of having the same definition and word for a particular thing when you were speaking to others that might not be developers. And I think that and you have spoken about that when you talked about data as well. Mm. How do we define what we're talking about? And I think that's getting more and more important when we do more cross-functional teams, when we interact with users in a, in a different way. So I do think that exactly the discussion we have been having now is essential. And I think this is also because everyone that weren't able to see my face should have seen my face when Haney were were making her point. And there are some definitions that are so clear that you have a very hard time understanding that even though you know you're right, others might say that you're wrong and be right. So I, I think this is these are very valuable discussions and something to take with us in, in all the assignments we do and all the customers we meet that can we first be very clear on what we're referring to when we say an Azure tenant, an Azure environment, or something else. There is an English way of putting it very succinctly. Assumption makes an ass out of you and me. And yes, it's funny, but it is also very, very apt. Assume nothing, and that hopefully you're not going to walk into this because it hurts. (laughs) We are running out of time. Funny that. We're at least consistent. So I'm just going to go through a few quick uh, community news. I'll be speaking at the Global Power BI Summit. It's running between the 7th and the 11th, and it's, um, it's a pretty fun event because it is literally following the globe. It is running all over uh, 24-7, essentially. Um, I'm going to be on on the 7th. Uh, it's a pre-recorded um, session. It's a 45-minute session, but I'll be in available in the chat to discuss and answer any questions. And then both Haney and I are going to sickle bits. Yay! I'm going to be the advanced um, troop to... Um, kind of figure out how things are working. And then mm-hmm. when she's done running around the slopes, uh, she's coming in uh, with her uh, snowboard, um, <laughs> essentially going straight into um, to the party and during and doing your session. So I'm going to be doing two sessions. Let's, let's say that. Um, might be more than that, but I, I can't talk about that yet. And Haney, you're going to be doing how many? Two as well. Right. Terraform stuff and networking or data services stuff. 
And it's London, right? It is in London. London. Correct. It's so jealous. So jealous. It's a wonderful city. It is. And it's been quite a while since I was there, so. Yeah. Deep sigh. Mm -hmm. And I think on that uh, very (laughs) sad face of Simon, it is actually time to end the, the episode. So thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back hopefully in a week with an interview. And until then, have a good one. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Need Even Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needypentech.com.